0: You're listening to a talk from Grace Church Barrow, a local church community for Holbeck, Roos and beyond. Our current teaching series is called Rebuild, looking at the Old Testament book of Haggai. This message comes from Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. I want to just begin by talking about Samizdat. I don't know if that's a, a word that you know. Sam uh, is a is a Russian word, and it's the word used for uh, the the literature that was produced um, illegally during the Soviet era. It was it was literature that was produced secretly uh, that was used to undermine the Soviet rule, and so uh, people would print these documents, these these books, these pamphlets. Uh, Exposing the, the horrors of the Soviet rule, exposing its weaknesses, and calling people to, to rebel, calling people to revolution against it. And yet it was entirely illegal to do so. The printing presses would would be hidden away and they would be passed secretly from one to the other. It was kind of subversive literature that challenged the order of things, challenged the, the state of affairs of the day. It was called Samizdat. Um I read a I don't tend to read many uh fiction books generally. I try and read one every summer. Um, but there was a there's a brilliant Russian book, a uh, brilliant book about that called The Traitor and the Spy, um that is tells the story of a Russian spy. And Samizdat um is very much this idea of this subversive secret underground literature that challenges um, challenges the state of affairs. And as we come to Haggai chapter two verse 20 to 23, what we have really is what you might call Samizdat. We've got something that is very subversive, very challenging as to the state of affairs of the day. I wonder if you notice as we've gone through Haggai, um, every time Haggai gives a message, um, it's dated for us. So if you go back to chapter 1, Verse 1, the very first uh, verse of the book, if you remember this, uh, it says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Now, King Darius, we haven't really talked much about him. King Darius was not the king of Judah. He wasn't the king of Israel. He was the king of Persia. Persia was the ruling empire of the day. God's people have been taken off into Babylon. And then the Babylonian Empire had fallen to the Persians and it was King Darius who ruled. It was King Darius who'd given permission for this little group of God's people to go back to Jerusalem. But every time Haggai gives a message, chapter 1 verse 1, (coughs) chapter 2 verse 1 and in his third message, chapter 2 verse 10, you get a little marker that tells us the date according to the year of King Darius's reign. It's a little reminder that actually this book was written, not when God's people ruled, but when someone else ruled, King Darius. He was in charge. He was calling the shots. And yet as we turn to our passage today, the last message, we get an exception to the rule. I wonder if you noticed that when we read it. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. No mention of the king. No mention of King Darius, and yet look who this message is addressed to. It's addressed to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now Zerubbabel has been uh, he's been mentioned a number of times in this book. Every time Haggai's brought a message, Haggai's had given his message to three groups of people: to to all of the people of Judah, to Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and to Joshua the priest. And yet in this final message. Uh, He gives it just to Zerubbabel. He was like the king of God's people who wasn't really a king. He was just a governor. He'd been given permission to, to lead some of God's people back into the promised land under the foreign king, King Darius. And yet, just as we begin this little section, we get a little hint that actually this passage is going to be slightly subversive, to put it mildly. No mention of King Darius ruling anymore. Instead, we're going to find out about God's rule. And so I want to flag up a big question that I think this chapter is, these these verses are particularly going to uh, address us with and challenge us on. As you look around at the world, who seems to be in charge? As you look around at the world, who seems to be in charge? To put it another way, as you look at your own life, who or what? Calls the shots in your life. For God's people at that time, it looked like King Darius was in charge. It looked like King Darius called the shots on life as they knew it. And yet, in these last three verses, just three verses in the in what is a very short book, uh, Haggai wants us to completely re examine the foundations we are building our lives on. He wants us to re examine personally. Who is it who calls the shots in our lives? Very easy, isn't it, to just set our, set our lives according to uh, what the media tells us in terms of the values that we have, in terms of the kind of lifestyle we should have, in terms of the things that we should prioritise and the things we should treasure in our lives, what we want for ourselves, what we want for our children. Who or what calls the shots in your life? Or maybe we feel, well, actually, I don't buy into any of that out there. Who's in charge? Well, it's me who's in charge. I call the shots in my life. And maybe you're very conscious of that. Actually, I'm, I set the, the pace. I set the tempo. I set the values for my life. And again, Haggai wants to just challenge us on that this morning. Who or what calls the shots in your life? Just got two simple points taking us through these verses this morning. And the first is this, if you're a note taker or anything like that. Um, The first point is this, to see the fragility of visible power and think again about who calls the shots in our lives. To see the fragility of visible power and think again about who calls the shots in our lives. Have a look at chapter um, 2 verse 21. Have a look at what Haggai says to Zerubbabel the governor. He says this, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the powers of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. It's not the first time, if you've been listening to Agai over these past few weeks, it's not the first time that he talks about a shaking, is it? In the very second message, Earlier on, at the start of chapter two, he talked about a similar shaking of the heavens and the earth. And in that picture, it was very much all the riches, all the blessings, all the all the good stuff would be coming towards God and His people. Uh, talk, talked about a, a, a future vision of of God's people in God's place, enjoying His blessing, the blessing of the world. But here, it's a slightly different picture. There's a shaking, but the emphasis is verse twenty-two on. The thrones of the world being overturned. Do you notice that in verse 22? See the way it's kind of repeated? I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. It's a picture of the thrones of this world being shaken, of being turned upside down, of of the authorities that we that we know now being shown to be actually not as authoritative, not as powerful as we might think. We're to see the fragility of the visible power. Now, in some ways, we might feel at the moment we are going through an experience of shaking. Lots of the values, lots of the, the things we think we can trust in, like our health, uh, like our um, our finances perhaps, like the authorities of our, of our world, are being shown to actually be as powerless um, as, as anything. Um, we can't predict so much. I guess we see it perhaps quite powerfully in the image of a, of a prime minister, who, who we've prayed for, for wisdom, being actually having to be taken into hospital, who himself can't um, defeat this virus. It ha- leaves its mark upon him. I was reading an interview with someone who worked for the World Health Organization online, and again he was sort of saying a similar um, story. He was this expert in the virus, and yet suddenly the virus was was completely changing his life, and he found himself in a hospital bed and We see the fragility of visible power um, but actually, you may notice in in some of this language um, uh, there 's there's, there's more going on than just the virus isn 't there. See that language at the end of, of horses and their riders falling each by the side by the sword of his brother now, if you know um, your Bibles, then you might recognize that language as coming from the, the the victory song after the exodus. Do you remember the the exodus when Moses led the people out of Egypt, and the way that God defeated their enemies, Pharaoh and his great army, was to bring the waters of the Red Sea crashing down. Upon them. The horses and their riders fell. And God's people celebrated their freedom, celebrated the victory and power of God in Exodus chapter 15 by singing about that victory. And Haggai brings up that imagery, brings up that language to say what he's talking about is of a similar parallel. It's it's a victory of God's people, it's a victory of God's power against all those who oppose him. Now we instinctively want to know when when's this going to happen? When when is this day that Haggai talks about in verse 23? On that day he says. When is that day? Is that just now? Is that just our present experience of shaking? Well, when you when you're reading the Old Testament, uh, it often feels like you're this little guy here in the in the picture. You're this little blue dude and you're looking at a mountain and, and the Old Testament often makes promises about things that are going to happen in the future, like on that day, verse 23. And it's like you're looking at a mountain peak in the distance. You're wondering when that day is going to come and you're wondering what it's going to be like. But as we get to the New Testament, um, things look slightly differently. It's almost as if that day is, kind of, is, is lengthened, if you like. Suddenly, what seemed to be one mountain peak which presumably for Haggai's generation would have looked like something they would have expected in their own lifetime under Zerubbabel, suddenly we see actually it's a whole mountain range. And so that one day basically is fulfilled in in different ways. And it's very interesting when uh, Matthew in his gospel describes Jesus's death, he describes the, the world being shaken, Jerusalem being shaken. Uh, in some ways, actually, the cross is the moment when, when God defeats his enemies. He defeats Satan and defeats sin by, by paying himself for sin and showing that Satan has nothing to hold against God's people. God bears the wrath upon himself against sin. Uh, and so you could say, well, that day, that day of shaking is the day of Jesus' death. But actually, it's, it's more than that. Because in the New Testament, we're also told that there will be a future day, a future day of shaking, a future day when, when everyone will be brought low and all those who oppose God uh, will, be, will face his right justice and judgment. And so what looked like a single day for, for Haggai and, and Zerubbabel's generation, as we, as we read our New Testament and see that the way that the Bible uh, expands and progresses, we see actually it's a mountain range. And so we stand in between the shaking of jesus 's death and the final shaking to come, a day when all those who oppose God uh, will be brought low when there will be final justice. Now we kind of might struggle with that idea of, of god's of god 's judgment um, those, he, he's a, those who oppose him being brought low, being defeated and yet you go to other places around the world and you speak to Christians who are facing persecution in Nigeria or North Korea and you realize you realize actually how precious this this truth is that one day all those who oppose Jesus uh, will be brought low where his kingdom will be seen to be true and good and powerful. So Haggai tells us firstly that we need to see the fragility of human power Uh, and and we need to think again about who calls the shots in our lives because if we just base our lives upon those who look powerful now upon the values that look powerful now upon what we see on our Facebook feeds or what our, our magazines tell us we should be doing with our lives what we should be investing in then one day that human power will be exposed and we'll be on the wrong side of history Haggai says live your life on the right side of where history is going and see the fragility of that human power. But if that's kind of like the, the negative, if that's kind of the, um, the warning, um, Haggai then brings us a promise. Uh, it brings us a promise to encourage us to lift our eyes. And it's this, to know the certainty of God's king and to build your life on him. And have a look at verse 23, if you've still got it in front of you. On that day, uh, God continues, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, remember who he's talking to, this guy, Zerubbabel, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. They're the very last words of the book. Now, we haven't really talked about Zerubbabel much. He's been mentioned every time Haggai gives a message but nothing's really been said about him we know that he was the governor he was the one in charge of God's people um, but actually as we as we read as we read there he is the son of Shealtiel verse 2 um, sorry verse 23 and that meant he was the grandson of someone called Jehoiakim now we need to uh, do a bit of of, of bible digging here um uh, Jehoiakim was the king, was 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 um, Zerubbabel's grandfather. He was in the line of David, great King David, uh, who ruled God's people, for whom God gave um, amazing promises that someone in the line of David was going to um, be the king of God's people forever. There was 14 generations between that great King David and, and Jehoiakim. And it was Jehoiakim, or sometimes known as Jeconiah, who was the grandfather of this is a rubber Now why did it matter to be in the line of David? Why did it matter that there would be a king in the line of David? Well back in the book of 2 Samuel this is one of the great big promises of the Bible. Um, God promises to David this. You can read it on the screen. He says now then tell my servant David this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture." From tending the flock, he was a shepherd, remember, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. See what David's being promised there that, that someone in his line, someone in his offspring is going to rule God's people, have an established kingdom, an eternal kingdom and it will be a safe place, it will be a place of blessing for God's people. So it was really important for God's people to have a king in the line of David and yet Jehoiakim, this king in the line of David, Zerubbabel's grandfather, he was the king who was in charge when God's people got taken into exile. He was held responsible for for Judah's sin. And in the prophet Jeremiah, we read this, these devastating words. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. None of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David, or rule any more in Judah. Those were devastating words for God's people to hear, because they they seem to be saying that this would be the end of the line of David, that line of blessing, that river of blessing carrying God's promises through God's chosen king, seemed to be coming to a stop with Jehoiakim. Um, Exile the throne, the crown was taken off his heads off his head. now Jehoiakim then had a son called Shealtiel who, who who would have been growing up in in Babylon, and Shealtiel then had another son, this guy Zerubbabel. His name literally meant seed of Babylon because he was born in in Babylon in this foreign nation his name spent his name spoke of. Uh, the fact that he was he was in a foreign place, not not in God's place, um, and he was just the governor. There was no crown here, and he'd led this group of people under King Darius's blessing back into Judah, and yet, what does God say to him? Verse twenty three: "I will take you, my servant." Do you recognise that language from that promise to David? I will take you my servant Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and I will make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you. Do you remember that the language of signet ring was something that uh, that was picked up in that in that prophecy that Jer- in that in those words from Jeremiah about Jehoiakim he will be a signet ring that will be pulled off. That signet signet ring being like a sign of authority, a sign of God's of God's blessing. That, that, that's gone and yet now in verse 23 uh, Zerubbabel is given this promise and said actually I am going to establish my king through you Zerubbabel you are in the line of David and you're my servant and I'm going to make you like my signet ring now the crazy thing is um, we don't actually know much more about Zerubbabel. As we, as we read on in the Bible, as we look out throughout history, uh, we don't really find out what really happened. And by all accounts, nothing much seems to actually happen for God's people. Um, there never was a particularly impressive temple again in Jerusalem. And although the Persian Empire gradually fell um, to the Greeks, that was just effectively another empire taking over. God's people were still the minority. If you like that, imagine that river of blessing in the promises, in the line of David. Imagine that river kind of going underground. uh, And we can't see it anymore until we fast forward to Matthew's gospel. Matthew, writer of the New Testament, as he begins his gospel, he's at pain to tell us who this Jesus is. He begins chapter one. This is the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he goes on and he gets to verse 12 and he says this, After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihad. And, and then he goes on until we get to verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Christ. And suddenly this river burst up from under the ground and we see actually these promises have not been forgotten the great promises of blessing through a Davidic line of a king who is going to rule have burst up out of the ground in Jesus Christ Jesus who is called the Christ Christ literally meaning God's promised king the chosen one and so Haggai's message Haggai's message isn't that Zerubbabel will see blessing in his lifetime, but actually in his line, that line of David, the blessing will come. And so Haggai says, know the certainty of this line of blessing and build your life upon this king. Um, I guess the, 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 the reality of that kind of the weakness that Haggai's generation would have felt is perhaps a, a weakness we too feel in our generation. Our present experience, it doesn't feel like Jesus is king. Perhaps it feels like the river has gone underground. And in a sense at the cross, the river well and truly went underground to the depths of the earth as Jesus uh, died. And lost his life. And yet through those events, Jesus' kingdom is being established as people uh, turn and trust in this king who gave his life for us. And, and just as Haggai talked about a future day, one day we will see Jesus' kingship and in all its glory when he returns. And so this book challenges us to, to say, will we line up our priorities with those of King Jesus Um, I read I read this quote um, the very word Christ meant God's chosen king therefore a Christianity without Jesus as our king is not a Christianity that the Bible recognizes but too often we want the blessings of God's kingdom but without his king will you line up your priorities with king Jesus it's funny, this book of Haggai. So much of Haggai has been about the temple, hasn't it? Building the temple. And we know the temple is a picture of God's people. We're called to build disciples, to grow disciples. But as the book ends, it doesn't end with uh, a temple. It doesn't end with a place. It ends with a person. And it's this person that we're to build our lives on. As we give ourselves to the work of making disciples, as we give ourselves to of our- to growing ourselves to living our lives under his priorities as we give ourselves to to wanting others to discover him Haggai says will you line up your life with King Jesus he is my chosen one my servant he is my signet ring my seal is upon him and whatever our present experiences whoever it seems to whoever seems to call the shots in our world Jesus says know that know the fragility of those human powers and live your life, uh, build your life on King Jesus, on his unshakable promise, on his authority and his power. Though we don't see it now, one day we will. And, and so as we live with him as our king, not just our saviour, not just a nice part of our lives, but as our king, the one we orientate our lives around, uh, that, is, um, that is to know who truly does call the shots in this life. So what begins as what we said, Sam is Dad. That subversive uh, literature. Actually, one day we'll see that this literature is is actually full of truth. It's full of the truth, even though it might be seen as as nothing. Even though it might be seen as weak and foolish. Now, one day, everyone will recognise that he he is the king, and he is a good king, a king that we can trust. So um, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer now, and. Perhaps just first we have a, a time of quiet and you might like to just think for yourself, how does this challenge me in my life? How, how am I being called through the book of Haggai to build my life on King Jesus? Where do I feel in the present, the, the sort of the seeming weakness of that? Um, where am I looking to something else to call the shots in my life? And where do I need to let Haggai speak into my situation? Just a moment of quiet. On that day, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. Father, we praise you for our King Jesus, that he is the Christ, that the river has burst through the surface and we see your line of David. We see that his kingship is is good and is a sign of your power. Pray that you'd help us to reorientate ourselves around him, to build our lives upon him, pray that you give us time uh this week to perhaps just mull on on your kingdom to see where we're living our lives by something else letting something else call the shots in our lives and to instead give our lives to building upon king jesus seeking others uh, that others would know him that we would know him more and we pray in jesus name amen